0: So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Microsoft, you know, I remember it being around because I grew up in Atlanta, and I remember there being a a big Microsoft office with a big Microsoft sign on it, but nobody really back then knew exactly what they did.
1: Welcome to Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast. Your place for resources and in depth conversations with other game development professionals. I'm your host, John J.P. Podlasic. I've worked at 10 different game companies, starting back in 1989 with the TurboGrafx 16. Over the decades, I've developed games like Mortal Kombat, Avengers Initiative, Beavis and Butthead, and numerous others. I now work for a startup called Level X. But this podcast isn't about me, it's about you and the game development community. So if you have questions or ideas, give a call 224-484-7733 or go to the gamedevadvice.com website. I have a great episode for you today, so let's kick things off with the new Game Dev Advice. Today's guest is Dwayne Mason, co-founder and co-owner of NXA Studios China and NXA Studios Argentina. NXA Studios is one of the leading art production service companies in the game development industry. Art development and art production support for PlayStation, Xbox, and PC game development is their main line of service. NXA Studios has contributed to major game franchises such as Mortal Kombat, Assassin's Creed, Call of Duty, Street Fighter, Resident Evil, Monster Hunter, and many more. Prior to starting NXA Studios, Duane had been a mocap specialist very early in his career. In fact, he was the very first full time mocap tech in the world. Eventually, that role led to a long stint at Sony PlayStation in the software games division, building and running the first party art services group there. After Sony, he was named studio art director for Midway Amusement Games. Headquarters in Chicago in 2007. Midway survived just shy of two years from that point, but that eventually led to him starting his own company, NXA Studios. NXA is now in its eighth year of service and still growing steadily. Let's talk to Dwayne. Hey, Dwayne, how's it going? Great, John. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the invite. Cool. Glad to have you on. All right, we'll kick things off. Kind of tell me about your your current role in the company.
0: Well, currently I use the title of uh, Vice President, Business and Marketing for NXA Studios, and mm-hmm. my role in Business and Marketing covers, you know, of course, marketing, which uh, everyone kind of gets what that involves, uh, and then the business side is sort of intertwined with the type of marketing things that we will typically do, which is, you know, attending trade shows and conferences, and the, occasionally I do some light client outreach kind of stuff, you know, kickoff meetings for new projects and support calls mm-hmm. when a, you know, an issue comes up here or there and then the occasional, you know, on-site client visit. Those are usually fun, so.
1: Yeah. No, that's cool. Well, that's interesting the role in having the company and things like that. Can you kind of back things up and kind of tell us how you got started in the video game industry?
0: Well, let's see. I got to really back it up. I got all the way back to high school. <laughs> I got I kind of got okay. started by by not getting started in a sense because You know, when you get to be in 11th or 12th grade in high school, you got to really start thinking seriously about what it is you want to, you want to be and do so that you can sort of, you know, tune in on that and focus in college Mm -hmm. Tune you know, aim your degree at what it is you think you want to be later in life. And so uh, for me, by the time I got to that point, I had a little bit of a conundrum because I had, um, from basically a pretty artistic family. Uh, My dad's Mm -hmm. really good at art. My brother and myself, we were all kind of naturally good at it. And so I knew I wanted to do something along the lines of you know of art production, art and creativity. But at the same time, I'm I'm a I was a kid that I had a subscription to Entrepreneur magazine when I was 13, and I read hmm. How to Win Friends and Influence People, and I was really trying to do right. a lot to to learn about you know how to be successful in business even from a young age. So I kind of had that drive, um, kind of in the uh, you know push me from from behind. And so mm-hmm. the issue that I had was that uh, you know being an artist being a successful artist is about like, it's kind of like being a musician in a way there's a lot of, you know, really great talented musicians out there, but very few, mm-hmm. you know, make it to the point of being a, a rock star. So right. I kind of, you know, I kind of felt like I wanted to do both, but I didn't know how to accomplish that. So the solution that I came up with was uh, I decided to go to college and pursue a degree in graphic design uh, with an eye towards going into advertising. Because ah, Exactly what I did. Oh yeah. <laughs> in oh, some ways. I didn't know yeah. that.
1: I have a, BFA in graphic design. And then, yeah, I spent a short period as a uh, graphic artist or excuse me, a computer graphic um, artist and then was trying to retool my portfolio for ad agencies. So, yeah.
0: When I went to school, the thing that happened that really kind of broke for me in the right way was that as I was pursuing my, you know, graphic design degree, one of the things mm-hmm. that came along was the was the personal computer revolution. And it may be kind of hard for, you know, some of the younger people that maybe listen to us today to really kind of grasp this, but back in those days, you know, that was the days of pagers. There were no cell phones. I mean, there were mobile phones had just, or just were coming out. Those things were like, you know, the size of a brick and probably weighed about the same as a brick. And even then, you had to be a a big time CEO to carry one of those around. And uh, Microsoft, you know, I remember it being around because I grew up in Atlanta and I remember there being a a big Microsoft office with a big Microsoft sign on it, but nobody really Back then, knew exactly what they did. And, you know, unless you happen to be in the end of the industry, it was just an unknown thing before the the personal computer revolution sort of happened. So, because this is this is you know eighty nine ninety, I believe it's about about the time frame there. Okay. So um, the thing that really broke for me was while I was in school, the Georgia State University had a a class that they offered that was PC Paint, and basically mm-hmm. it was a Microsoft Paint program. The, I think the first or second version probably. And I believe yeah. if I remember, there was a Corel draw element to it. Oh yeah. I and that. so yeah. I got into that class and I was just said, okay, I just said, okay, I think this is for me. This is where it's going. Not that you could do so much with it, but it was just cool, you know, to use mm-hmm. a new medium like that to be able to, to create artwork. And you could kind of see that it, you know, if it got better, it was going to be big, you know, so I really right. got excited and, and sort of put a focus on that. The next thing that really broke my way and kind of set me off on my career path was just one of those, you know, kind of lucky kids met type of situations because I was mm-hmm. putting myself through school and I was working for a valet company in uh, downtown Atlanta, valet parking cars at night, you know, and I would work at a nice yeah. restaurant one night or a, a hotel the, another night. And it was pretty cool because sometimes I'd work at the nicer hotels and there would be rock stars staying there, you know, like I met Robin Zander, a cheap trip one time, you know, valet parking. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was busy doing that and a fellow pulled up one night and, and a big old, you know, sedan rental car. And, you know, typically I would help guests, you know, pull their their luggage out of the back of the trunk or whatever and, and, uh, you know, give it to the the bellhop type of guy. And so I was helping this this gentleman unload the back of his trunk and he had a a lot of big cardboard boxes with videotape, you know, the videotape boxes in them. And you remember those big Mm -hmm. plastic, you know, cases, the videotapes came in. And on the front of that videotape box was a very obviously 3D computer generated golfer swinging a golf club with a bunch of Lines and stuff coming, you know, trailing the yeah the, the swing article. or something, and so yeah, being someone that was in school in art, interested in doing computer graphics, and again, you know, the old band stories, but this is back when uh, I think Luxo was the first thing Pixar had done, and probably the only thing they had done at that point, you know. So it was mm-hmm. early, early three D computer graphics uh, yep. days, you know. Uh, I think Max Headroom had been on MTV, <laughs> and that looked like yeah. computer graphics, but that was mostly fake, you know. That was a guy in a mask. Yeah. So uh right, it made to right. look like a CG render. So I was really interested in that. So I just bugged the hell out of this guy. And, you know, he was a friendly type of guy, lucky for me. And, and um, we kind of hit it off and started conversing a bit. And he was in town that week to do a remote setup of a motion capture system on the paddock, hmm. uh, the training paddock of the Atlanta Country Club, where they were hosting a PGA Tour event for the week. So what they were doing is they were using motion capture to do sports analysis. And that was the business plan of the company that this gentleman owned. And so um, they were in the early stages, they were still, you know, developing the software. And this is all stuff that was running on Silicon graphics machines on, you know, under Unix and the, mm, the mocap right. system, the host machines were the sun microsystems, you know, which were also kind of a variant of Unix. And so yeah. um, I didn't know anything about any of that stuff. You know, I mean, i had been doing Corel Draw,
1: you know, on a, right. on a right. Yeah. Yeah
0: but i really really wanted to to get into it and so just you know bugging the guy talking to him every time i saw him come and go over the next few days i got him to you know sit down with me and kind of let me you know kind of explain to me what they were doing how they were doing it and it was cool. really really cool to see because to me immediately i went to animation you know because they're they're actually capturing motion and you know generating a computer animated character with that motion on it mm-hmm. and the the character was very rudimentary of course it was just you know basically, you know, 12 or 14 parts, two feet, two lower legs, two upper legs, you know, etc. But I found it really, really interesting. And so long story short, they ended up hiring me as a gopher for the whole week of uh, the golf tournament there. And they were there to hmm. capture the PGA Tour pros. So they were capturing, you know, Fred Couples and Arnold Palmer and Peter Jacobs, and, oh, wow. you know, all the guys of, of that era that were the, the big stars at the time. So I went out there and it was kind of cool because it was, they had a, one of those big giant party tents set up, and they had really nice mm-hmm. flowers and plants and water fountains and a big uh, Barco screen, which was the biggest, you know, that was the biggest big screen you could get at the time and any kind of resolution. Yeah. So it was really cool to do that. And so they had a deal with um, a lead software engineer, a guy named Frank Vitz, and he went on to do a lot of cool things. The most recognizable for people in general would probably be, he's the guy that wrote the water simulation stuff for the Stargate. Remember the old Stargate movies?
1: Oh, yeah. You would jump through that right, yeah, yeah. water
0: thing. He wrote that yeah. algorithm for that. Uh, and, and so he was a he was a visual effects and CG programmer type of guy. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. in addition to Frank, who lived in Atlanta at the time, they were using all the graduate students at, uh, at Georgia Tech's uh, multimedia lab, which was probably, you know, second or third or fourth in the nation after uh, MIT. Hmm. And so they had yeah, a lot know. of high end equipment and a lot of, you know, really, you know, pretty stellar programmers and things like that. And those guys were writing the BioVision software. And hmm. the purpose of the software was to take the 3D motion data plot and then you know uh, build the hierarchy chain and, and animate the 3D graphics. And so that was really the start of motion capture. That was that was it right there. And that was my very first foray into that. And then uh, so that tournament came and went, and I did all the work and I worked hard and I, I bugged the hell out of the guys that were there, you know, running the system and doing the programming. Trying mm-hmm. to learn as much as I could from them while I was there for a week. Then uh, they called me up again and they said, "Hey, we're because they were based in California in Santa Rosa." And they called me up uh, about, I think, a month or two later. And they said, hey, we're coming down and we're going to go do another tournament in, um, I think it was at Tory Pines.
1: Oh, that's a famous one. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And so they had machines that they were getting um, in a deal with Silicon Graphics, which was in a, a suburb of Atlanta. And then they had mm-hmm. the motion capture system. Part of the deal with Georgia Tech was they lent them their motion capture system that BioVision owned for all the time, that, you know, let them use that and the machines that they had while the, these guys were working on the, you know, the software programming for them. And, you know, there were other parts to it, but, but that was a big part of it. So they tasked me to go to Georgia Tech and, and pack up and load up all the the mocap, all the, um, you know, the, the systems that go with that. And then yeah. they had me go out to Marietta in Atlanta to to pick up the big Silicon Graphics 310 machine, which was like a 300 pound dual tower. <laughs> you know, it had casters on it. Yeah. You had to roll it. Yeah, That thing was huge. So I had to go out there yeah. and pick that up, and then uh, and drive all that up to Pinehurst and set up for the next mm-hmm. golf tournament and spend the week there doing that. So I spent another week with all the programmers and all the mocap equipment and all the hardware and software, and it had come along quite a ways since, uh, you know, in the in the couple of few months since the last tournament. And so. At that point, I, you know, I knew the guys a little bit more and they started really teaching me a bit about how to set up the mocap system and how to operate, you know, the sun platforms and how mm-hmm. to, you know, edit some data and all that kind of stuff. So from that point, I was, uh, you know, the one guy that kind of was learning how to do all that stuff. And those guys didn't want to do it. They were busy, you know, trying to write the software. Yeah. So, you know, the story goes on and on. But long story short is uh, eventually this this fellow flew, flew out from California and said he wanted to take me to lunch and he offered me a job. And he said, uh, move to California. And I was, I said, <laughs> you know, cause I'm like uh, okay. 20 years old at this point. So I thought about it and, uh, yeah, I decided, uh, I was going to take a hiatus from school and give this a shot and see how it might work out. And so no. that's what I did. I rented a U-Haul and I packed up all my shit and I moved to California.
1: <laughs> no credit to you, right? Cause, um, you had the ambition, you, you nagged them, you did a good job and you were asked to, and you know, you proved your value. And when they they had a need, they're like, let's, let's call that guy that, uh, that young kid that was hustling.
0: Yeah. And I knew, I knew I saw something special too. When I saw that, I knew, I knew it wasn't just an everyday thing. I said, Oh, this is, this is really something, you know, I want to be part of this thing, whatever that leads to, because I knew it would lead to something. I just didn't know what the funny thing is it could have really, cause I was the first motion, full-time motion capture employee. The other guys, you know, the Georgia tech guys were students on a contract. Frank Vince was on the Mm -hmm. contract writing the software. So they hired me when I moved to California and I was their first employee. And so I literally was the first full-time mocap person in the, probably in the world, I guess. I mean, not count. I mean, cause those systems were made for like uh, you know, gait analysis and medical study and things like that. You know, how does a baboon, you know, motivate that sort of Yeah, yeah.
1: psychology stuff and things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Motion study
0: kind of things like physiology. But they were taking it and using huh. it for entertainment purposes. And and their goal was to do, like I say, sports analysis. And for the first two or three mm-hmm. years of, at BioVision, that's what we did. We did sports analysis. We did tons of PGA golf tour stuff. And we actually got our stuff on, you know, on the broadcast on ABC Sports on Sunday, the PGA, you know, whichever tournament happened to be. We would go there and no, that's cool. capture pros and then they would say, Oh, we're going to look at biovision, you know, and they would break it down and analyze <laughs> the golf swing. And then we, right. we went to Colorado Springs and, and did all the Olympic sports that we could do. We couldn't do swimming, but almost everything else we did. And then we ended up doing, you know, through Frank Vitz, who was, uh, and kind of in Hollywood at that point, he got a lot of, um, like CG animated commercials and movie stuff going for us because he was kind mm-hmm. of becoming a big name and, you know, visual effects and such.
1: Right. So right.
0: We did a lot of really interesting things over those years kind of pertaining to motion capture.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, very much in the, the early days, not like now where you can, you just if you have the, the money, you just buy the yeah, yeah. the Vicon system. Oh, no, yeah. and all yeah, it those was, it of was a plug
0: and play. We were the only game in town because we were the only people that had that, you know, that could bridge that gap between the, the, the actual motion data, plotting all the points to creating, you know, a fully animated hierarchical skeleton from that. You know, mm-hmm. And then applying 3D graphics to follow that skeleton—that was the trick of it. Hmm. I mean, I have a letter somewhere in my storage from from James Cameron wanting to—he met with us for uh, in the pre-production of Terminator 2 because they wanted to talk to us oh, about wow. doing the the T10,000 animation. I got to go Ooh. to Industrial Light and Magic back when it was in uh, what was it? San Mateo. It was hidden. Yeah. I mean, they they literally had false storefronts like dentists accountant on all <laughs> of the, the, all the, the, the warehouses. Shoe repair. Yeah, exactly. It was literally like that. And you go in there and, and you walk in and there's the, the original R2D2 model and, you know, hanging on the wall is a, is a star destroyer and the, the map painting from Peter Pan, you know, the, it's just crazy. Yeah. We went in there and we spent probably five or six hours there and man, I, I wow. could have spent five or six days. It was a dream for me. You know,
1: slack it was, job oh, walking around yeah. there. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah.
0: But like most things, those days that we were a small company, you know, pioneering stuff, and we didn't have a lot of money, you know, all these big names wanted us to basically work for them for free, just for the benefit of having worked for them. And yeah. uh, you can make that work in some cases, but I think the the, the two brothers that actually owned Biovision were not—I don't think they were quite that savvy to figure out how to make those things work out, you know. And mm. if they had, I would probably be, you know, independently wealthy just from having been the first person there at that company. You yeah. Know what I mean? Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. But unfortunately, <laughs> as things go, that kind of, you know, that ran its course. But what did happen was we set up shop in San Francisco. At the beginning, we were based up in Santa Rosa, up in the wine country, beautiful place. Mm-hmm. So I lived up there for a couple of years. Then we, That's uh, nice. we eventually located the company down in the heart of San Francisco and, uh, got a space there. Well, we spent a little time on San Hope Road in Palo Alto, which was the it's the center of venture capital. And that was, that was smart on their part yeah. because they got Charles Schwab and a bunch of other, you know, kind of heavy hitters. Frank Harrington was the head of Transamerica at the time, and they got you know mm-hmm. a bunch of those types really excited about you know the technology, and they could right. have gotten any of them to really invest in it and build something great out of it. But for whatever reason, and, you know, I wasn't privy to their business dealings at the time, but they never made it happen. Yeah. And they had, they, yeah. I know they had the interest because I was the one that was you know analyzing all these guys' golf swings when they came in, you know, three times a month. But that never happened. But what the, what did happen was we got set up and we were doing we started doing stuff for, for video games and this was mm-hmm. the Sega Saturn days and the PlayStation One and the you know mm-hmm. the early days uh, you know along those lines. So the mocap that we were doing was being used to animate in uh you know like in Wavefront Alias you know
1: and, oh, and yeah. then they were right.
0: rendering sprites out that were the, and the games were pushing two D sprites but they were animated in three D you know with motion capture. Mm-hmm. And mainly we were Mm -hmm. doing a lot of sports games, you know, we were doing some shooters and some fighting games, but we were, you know, I guess we were doing a pretty good variety of of games back then, but that sort of evolved. And we did that for two or three years. And then uh, at one point we had developed a relationship with several clients and Sony was one of them. And so at one of the Sony shoots, the guys, kind of the senior guys came over, you know, cause I was the guy that ran all the projects at BioVision, managed Mm -hmm. everything. And they kind of took me to the side or maybe, maybe it was at a lunch one day or something. And they said, Hey, how about you come work for a real company?" You know. We'll uh, we'll buy you whatever you want. We'll buy you whatever you need. So it took me about a year to because I had to think about that one because I was a big fish in a very small pond. You know, I was the lead guy. Yeah. And you know, you right. go to Sony and or an EA or something like that, and it's it's a big you know it's a big organization. So right. eventually they got me down to San Diego for an interview, and then once I saw San Diego, I said, okay, I'll be there. Here I come. <laughs> Get me, give me a Here spot, go. please. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sold. So I went to Sony in 1996. And uh, huh, okay. they hired me to start MoCap there, start a MoCap studio. And so huh. they actually had a MoCap system. But uh, when I got there to see it, they it was the same room that the testing department was in. And the testers had literally set up, uh, used the tripod of the MoCap cameras to set up tents to sleep under while they were testing. <laughs> you know? And it was like hardened milkshake on the floor. And it, it was yeah, you know, it, yeah. it was like a college dorm. It was just a wreck. So I got down there and And started all that but i started off with mocap there and then eventually i I was at sony almost 12 years and by the time i by the time i finished i built what we called the the central art you know services group and Mm -hmm. uh god we had we did a lot of things but mocap was one of them and that became a huge you know they actually ultimately built me this world-class facility there and then we pioneered a lot of 3d scan stuff because it was the same thing as when we started mocap there wasn't any 3d scan system but we took some existing you know stuff from industrial manufacturing things like that and uh, we kind of we kind of hobbled it all together with the Hasselblad 35 you know megapixel camera which at that time was just mind blowing resolution and then we hired an engineer to write the you know photogrammetry stuff to be able to use the textures with the 3D geometry that we generated from the 3D scanner it was like a german mm-hmm. auto manufacturing you know scanning system like or some ridiculous thing at the time. Wow. So, but sony that was, you know, those, those were the PlayStation two and early, you know, heading into PlayStation three years and things were good at Sony, say the least at that time. But so we did, we did 3d scan and motion capture. And then we, we, uh, we ended up having a cinematics group in there. And I, I ran the audio department for a short time there. And then we, we had a tools and technology group that was tasked with, you know, providing uh, support for art production services. So we had tools guys that would write us, you know, scripts and Python scripts, you know, and, and various pipeline tools and things like that, which was a huge right. boon. So, yeah, so we, we ended up, ha- you know, having sort of a full service internal art production group that, that basically only served Sony first party games. So I had a limited okay. client base. But, you know, Sony was making a lot of games, a lot of variety of games, because we were making 10 or 12 sports games at that time. And then, you know, there were all the SOCOMs and the Twisted Metals and God of War and stuff like that. Then we built a cinematics group and we got into, you know, HD level cinematic stuff, which was really exciting and cool and interesting. So that whole thing just evolved over the, you know, the first seven or eight years that I was there. And then eventually it got to the point where I was sitting at the top of this rather large department that had, you know, I don't know, five or six different subgroups within the department. And each of those groups had their own manager. And my management style is to, is to let those guys, you know, really learn and know everything about what they're there to do and then let them do that thing, you know, because they're the expert.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, get out of their ways. Yeah. So what that leads to
0: is me sitting kind of at the top of this pyramid with not much to do and, you know, not getting to do the fun stuff anymore. So, you know, I was do- I was right. dealing with legal and facilities. And then when you had to fire somebody, I had to deal with all that stuff and, you know, that mm-hmm. budgeting And, you know, five or six years of that, I kind of got really stale. And then there was some political stuff that's, you know, that typically happens when you're in a company of that size, you know, you get a, you know, who runs this versus who runs that and who has all that stuff. Just kind of started building up on my, on my shoulders and kind of, I was not really super happy. So I ended up leaving Sony in 2007. And then, uh, I think it was later in 2007 when I went to Medway. And of course that's where I met you.
1: Yeah. That's, uh, that's an impressive background there. And, uh, I didn't realize you were at Sony that long too. That, that's, that's very good. Yeah,
0: cool. I think it was 11 and a half years or something.
1: Yeah. That's a hell of a run at a, uh, at a video game company, right? Or a platform or, you know, however you want to classify it, just, uh, knowing the volatility of our industry and all that. Well,
0: you know what? I'll tell you a little funny secret that not many people know or now well, Maybe they do now, but didn't know then. Mm-hmm. But, uh, my mom actually moved to California because we had, you know, we had started a family and she wanted to be near the kids and. So she and she yeah. and her husband moved to California and he's, he's a little bit younger than her. She's kind of a little bit of a cradle robber, but he's a great guy. <laughs> and so when they moved out, he had zero experience in this, but I hired him because we had just started a, a 3D scan department and whoever we had there, we had to train from the ground up anyway to do the production work. And so I hired him to do the production, to, to be one of the production guys in the 3D scan group. And he's been, okay. he's been there almost, I think 18 or 19 years now. He's still there. <laughs> he's, Good hire. He's yeah. still, and every year he goes to spring training, and he goes to he captures every single new um, MLB player that there is, and, uh, and he's he's right. a big sports yeah. fan too. So he's, I mean, you know, mocap three D scans a lot of its sports based stuff. So right. So he's yeah, he's
1: still there. Still. a clam, right? He's still there. Doing well. Yep, doing well. That's cool. Well, cool. What do you wish you had known when you you know started? Well, when I got
0: that opportunity with Biovision, one of the things that kind of happened to me was I, I I had to dive in with you know both feet, and to do that, I really had to get to know those uh, those programmers that were building the software and understand the software. And to do that, mm-hmm. I had to dig into it somewhat from some time to time, and actually try to fix things myself or or make a little change because I, I I became the de facto or the default uh, designer of the software because I was the end user. So I had to learn some Unix programming stuff and, uh, you know, the SGI machines were were running on a, on a variant of Unix called Solaris. And so
1: very expensive too. Yeah. yeah all was,
0: their you yeah, know, all yeah. that stuff was crazy expensive at the time. But yeah, so if I'd known, you know, if I had had a little bit of heads up and known to learn some of that in advance, that probably would have helped me. But looking back on it, I think I, I kind of just simply learned it when I had to and only learned as much as was necessary for me to do what I needed to do. And then, you know, So that worked out well, but along those lines, you know, that's one thing that pops up to me that that I wish I'd known. One cool thing was that Mm -hmm. I had spent some time, you know, um, establishing a Domino's Pizza franchise just prior to all that, you know, really happening. And what I learned doing that has been invaluable to me throughout my career because, you know, we did everything. We we leased a a former clothing store and ripped everything out of it and turned it into a pizza store, including you know the drop ceiling and the flooring and the 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 tile walls and we ordered, you know, and I, I was young then. I was, I was, I think 18 or 19 when I did that. I mean, it wow. just so happened that I worked at Domino's when I was in high school and I kind of became friends with the manager of the store who was like a 23, or 24 year old guy. And he ended up with an opportunity to go and start a, uh, like a five or six store of franchise, which at that time, Domino's was a huge success and a huge business. And you could not get a franchise in the U.S. because they were all taken. Yeah. But his family had a friend and his friend had a franchise area. And he had opened, you know, six or eight stores and was making just gobs of money and he just didn't want the hassle of having any more stores. So he basically gave them a franchise area. So over the, over the course of the, you know, last six or eight months of my senior year in high school, he kind of talked me into going with him and it's funny cuz one of the one of the deliveries i would regularly make on my in my area where we lived which was a you know a nice suburb of, of atlanta was um, this community called riverside and riverside was you know the nice big fancy houses like you know one or two of them had yeah. a helipad in it you know nice big stuff and one of the guys that i would deliver to regularly there was this little old man and basically a mansion and he would answer the door <laughs> and every time he answered the door he had a waffle house shirt on cuz he was a waffle house <laughs> franchisee you know what
1: waffle house ah. is right Okay, quick question break. What are your thoughts so far? Do you have a topic idea, a question to ask, or a guest suggestion? Let me know at 224-484-7733 or on the gamedevadvice.com website Oh, yeah, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, yeah. It's was like, 3 a.m.,
0: you know. <laughs> yeah, it's late and you're drunk. Exactly. Welcome Welcome to Walfall. 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 Yep. Yeah. And then you got your truckers and your, you know, uh, yeah.
1: various people. There. It's like an IHOP. Yeah. But that
0: really yeah. sunk into my brain because I said, wow, that's a way you can succeed. You know, that's a path to success. Mm-hmm. That little, little right. old guy. And I talked to him, you know, I, I asked him about things and, you know, he gave me a little. Few like tips and lessons along the way, sometimes. But anyway, so when that Domino's franchise opportunity came along, I said, "Man, you know, maybe that's a, maybe that's my Waffle House." So, right. so I went yeah. and did it. And long story short, uh, Jeff, you know, the way the franchise system worked is you had to have a manager that had like a year, or two years, or something of experience in order to become a franchisee. So Jeff had mm-hmm. to take on a partner, even though it was his franchise area that he got. So he took on yeah. this partner named Bob, and Bob turned out to be a real jerk. And Bob and I uh-huh. just did not get along. So we accomplished a lot. We opened, I think, four or five stores about a year, and like I say, that's why I learned so much because we did everything, like from building to running to marketing to managing to hiring, firing everything you can do.
1: Um, yeah, and I learned a, you nuts, Yeah, yeah right, I learned a ton
0: thing. about you know running a business in that in that short, quick time as a pretty young young guy, and that's been really hmm. helpful to me.
1: I had no idea about that. And yeah, Domino's, yeah, for a while that it was the the only big pizza franchise you know they had the, the pizza noid
0: yeah.
1: Uh, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> avoid the noid avoid the noid yeah that was a, a big deal so like what kind of advice would you give someone in their career now that, that they're you know is working as a an artist or an animator you know currently in the industry and they want to take their skills to the next level or um, maybe get a promotion or look to work for a new company you know what are your thoughts around that? Well, I have some. I have some. I think a, a piece of advice that's pretty
0: much universal. But having said that, it may not apply equally to everyone because the effect of of this advice is is I would you know you can bet on it. But it does have uh you know it, it, you have to then deal with the effects of it. So let me just run it down and, and see what you think about it. Okay. Basically, it's personality based in some ways, and it probably works best for people who are a little bit more aggressive and kind of determined personality types. You know, like like me. Yeah. It took me some hard lessons kind of over the years, particularly in my time at Sony when I was building various different teams to to actually learn that not everybody's like me. Not everybody has the same goals and the same aspirations and, and wants to drive as hard as me. And you know, I yeah. made a few mistakes along the way with putting people in positions and kind of dragging people up who may not have wanted to come up that chain. You know what I mean? So so now I couch uh, this, this piece of advice with a disclaimer that it might not be for everybody. But okay. It's a pretty simple and, and incredibly effective uh, way to to open doors and create opportunities. You know, at literally every level of your career, no matter if, you know if you're just starting or if you're you're well on your way. It's yeah. as simple as this: it's basically always just give the people around you what they want, or better yet, if you can kind of figure it out, what they actually need. Just mm-hmm. give people around you what you want or what they need.
1: Right to empower them, basically, and then they can. Well, yeah,
0: you know. yeah. It just means it means. Look around you, you know, solve problems for the people around you. It doesn't matter if they're below you or above you or beside you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter at all. Just become a problem solver, you know. You get Mm noticed for it and people will always want more of it. And nothing really builds your value quicker, you know, or better than becoming known as the guy that solves problems. You know what I mean? Like it gets things
1: done. Right. Remove roadblocks, you yeah, know, yeah. so that people are like, wow.
0: And you have to, sometimes yeah, you have to, yeah. you know, you have to step out of your comfort zone a little bit. Sometimes you have to really think and, you know, really look at situations and think them through and figure out what the roadblock actually is. Because it's not always, a lot of times it's not obvious at all, you know, what, what mm-hmm. the holdup is. But man, if, you, if you're if you willing to work a, a little extra to make the whole team look good, you know, not just yourself, but you, you do it, you know, you do it for the team. You, you'll get the credit yeah. you deserve, you know, either initially or eventually you'll get the credit for it because you become right. known for that. You become known for working harder and smarter. And, you know, if you can do both and keep your eyes wide open mm-hmm. while you do it, that's the advice that I like to give.
1: No, that's, yeah, that's, that's great advice. And, um, yeah, don't just focus on yourself, focus on helping others, you know, removing those roadblocks and, you know, empowering people and then, uh they'll keep coming back to you. Right. Like, you know, like, wow. Absolutely. Dwayne took care of that for me. I trust Dwayne. Du- I'll, give, I'll give him something else. Well, that um, I really lived that at Sony
0: because I started. You know, they brought me there to do mocap because that's what I knew and that's what I did, and that is what I knew. And I didn't know, you know, the other five or six disciplines that I ended up, you know, building into my group. I didn't know those things like a new mocap. I knew mocap inside now.
1: Right, but yeah, audio production, right? That wasn't your background, yeah. right? But you learned it. But I saw yeah. what
0: was going wrong with the audio group in terms of the way they were doing mm-hmm. their services and the thing, you know, the things that were holding them back from being successful. By the time I did that, I had done a couple of things. And so my my bosses above me kind of began to trust me and kind of, I think, look at me that way as a guy that could, you know, kind of figure things out. And so mm-hmm. uh they gave me, you know, for a good stretch run there, we did some crazy growth. And it's all because they just, I'd go to them and propose something. And they'd say, yeah, sure, go do it. Right. And And part of it was because we were, you know, a cash rich company at that time. And I think there were less, you know, for a little golden stretch there, there were, you know, it was good times for all. And I I took full advantage yeah. of that. You know, I I expanded like crazy. But but every single thing I did w- became a beneficial thing to the to the effort, which was producing high quality games for PlayStation.
1: Right, and you know, s- set up the uh, the departments and got the equipment and things like that. You didn't you know go crazy like Ion Storm and build out movie theaters and yeah no right exactly. you know yeah, we, ceiling everything. clouds that would block the sun and do all this like crazy stuff they did. Just based on ego versus actually adding value back to the company. Yeah, and
0: I, I didn't, I didn't ever pull anything out of my, you know, backside. I, I talked to people and I g- gained enough understanding of what we could and couldn't do, and what was possible, and what you know might be, you know, uh, you know, impossible or, or not worth mm-hmm. you know doing. I, I kind of did my homework and did my did my leg work on you know any of those things before I started them, but. Yeah, uh, got advice from people who knew. I mean, we were lucky in that we had a we had a a, a good contractual relationship with several people that would work on Hollywood, you know, uh, CG animated films in Hollywood, or mostly mm-hmm. for the Sony, you know, the Sony groups up there. And then we would yeah. uh, we would get them to come down and and you know help us with our pipeline, you know, with our rendering pipeline ah. or the, you know, okay. the way we set up for our lighting or you know the the tools that we use and the you know just just everything the the tools that we needed to to develop. And so we mm-hmm. got a lot of expertise that way. And in some ways, I leveraged a lot of that expertise to build bigger and better things within our services group there.
1: Yeah, and yeah, smart, right? If you have those connections through the parent company, take advantage of them and um, reach out and be reciprocal and do those kind of things. That's, that's great.
0: And the reason I like to add the disclaimer to it now is because, like I said, I, I, I got some people promoted into positions that they actually didn't want because I just assumed that they would. And they were good. Mm-hmm. Were, you know, the people knew what they were doing. They were good people, but they weren't the personality yeah. type that wanted to be the the, the head of, you know, the, the IT department or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And so, uh, so right. I learned that lesson that not, not everybody has those same type of, you know, wants and, and, and desires where their careers involved. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that kind of does happen when you do what I'm suggesting here is that you, you will tend to rock the boat a little bit. You know, you may get some pushback yep. from, from your peers as they become your subordinates, you know, eventually. Or you, you right. may, um, what happens a lot of times is, is somebody that's your quote unquote superior may, you know, really take offense that you're coming up on the right. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, you, right, so you have to be right.
0: the personality type that's willing to, you know, push through all that and deal with it because that, that will happen. You know, it's not always going to be just a gentle process. Sometimes you have to kind yeah, of battle yeah. a little bit, you know?
1: Right. Yeah. And, and to your other point too, that is a good point about, you know, sometimes promoting people that don't want to be promoted. And I've seen that a lot myself too, where there, there are people that are very good at a discipline, you know, whether it's an engineer or, or artist or whatever, and then they right. they get in a, a management role, but they're not happy, right? They want to be individual contributors and, and that's where they're happiest, you know, to sitting there writing code and, and not attending meetings and doing those kind of things. So you need to kind of get a read on that. And, you know, for companies, have tracks where you can still get promoted and increase your salary and things without feeling that the only path you have is management because that sometimes forces people to want to go into management just cuz they, they want to make more money but then they're not happy you know in that role and, and they're more happy you know in front of the computer right doing their thing and not sitting in those meetings. Yes, so, exactly yeah.
0: you're exactly right. And the thing is the good news is a lot of uh, these companies have matured a ton you know by now. Mm-hmm. Like even even right. Sony in those days it was it was a little bit of wild west. You know, and like, like I say, I, yeah. I, I kind of, I didn't intentionally like take advantage of that, but I did use it to my advantage because it was like, Hey, what do we need? How do we do it? I don't know. You know, nobody knows. Okay, let me do it. You know, and I would go do yeah. it. And so we, a lot of things we we learned by doing, you know, so it mm-hmm. was kind of, it was kind of a bit open like that. But the flip side of that is what you're talking about, which is everything wasn't so established about, you know, what's the, what's the hierarchy tree? What's the career path? What's, you know, all those things yeah. had to mature as well, you know? Pretty much all all, yeah. all all elements of the business all matured over, over time. And they've gotten better, you know, they've gotten better.
1: Yeah, in, in, in certain companies, I think all companies at a certain size are smarter about that and some are more progressive about it, yeah you know? yeah All right, and I got a tough question for you here. Like, what's been your one or two favorite games or projects to work on if you have to pick, say, one or two of them?
0: Well, I think you know what I'm going to say here, John. <laughs> at least... The- <laughs> Probably right. Starts with an M. Starts with an M. Ends with a K. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mortal think... Kombat, baby. <laughs> well, I mean, right. the thing is, as a company, we we sort of do specialize in high end character stuff, and you know, we're now deeply involved with uh, the MK and the Justice franchises. You know, going back quite a few games now, and hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, knock on wood, into the future as well. And those franchises, you know, with the legendary characters and the just don't, you know honestly, absolutely kind of stunning level of rendering and lighting, the, you know, full screen effects in those games, yeah. the animation, just it all comes together and it's a lot of fun and, and wackiness too, which, you know, for a, for a mm-hmm. character or a team that specializes in, in character production for, a, you know, it works hard for a long, long time. It's really re- yeah. rewarding when those games come out. Cause you know, we got, we got 50 people in our studio in, in Argentina and they just work on, you know, this stuff, you know, for, for months and years And then when when it comes out, we set up a big party and we have a tournament and everybody tries to claim the crown, you know, and those guys will just, you know, they'll build their characters and get all the gear and do all the customizations and, you know, do the whole playthrough, the whole tree. And like a good majority of them will will go all the way through the whole game. So it's fun to love what you, you know, helped produce.
1: Yeah. And to see, you know, the success it's having. I I think I saw something today online about how MK is the number one selling game of uh. 2019. Yeah, and I think it I think it deserves it too cuz just look at it. I mean, it's it's amazing.
0: Oh, yeah. It really is. It's 3 hours of cutscenes. Yeah, and I love that. I mean, to me, that's my favorite part of the MK games is that story stuff, you know. Until maybe recently, until maybe the Wonder Woman film, I think the DC Universe stuff, the, you know, the Injustice franchise, those were the best DC character movies out there. It was the cut, the right. cutscenes in the in the in the nether realm injustice games i honestly you know i really felt that way now they've made a couple of good ones you know aquaman i you know it wasn't my favorite because i thought it was a bit over the top but a lot of yeah. people love aquaman and i don't, I have no problem with that i can see why but the wonder woman you know movie i thought that was pretty well done pretty good so so they're they're getting mm-hmm. it right a little bit which is great because those are iconic you know world-class characters and, and you want to see them served well like that but up until recently right. man I, I tell you the the nether realm stuff was beating it all you know we love the Capcom games. You know, we, we did a, a ton of work for Monster Hunter World and Resident Evil and Street Fighter 5. And those are all great, too. And, you know, the, we did the Assassin's Creed games for Ubisoft. We're constantly working on that stuff for them. We've done a few of the, a few in the, the Call of Duty franchise. And for me, you know, I'm a big FPS guy. So that's my jam right there is yeah. Call of Duty <laughs> stuff. And really, you know, more so the Star Wars Battlefront um, is my, probably my main game now because i just love battlefront because it's star wars you know yeah star Star wars Wars, they're a guy but it's the graphics are just amazing on it i mean it looks real you know and i can't Mm -hmm. imagine you know how much better it's going to get but i love playing through that and and you know i got to give dice a huge amount of credit because that game did not have a good start you know through no fault of theirs Mm -hmm. you know but um they've done a fantastic job of bouncing back from that by releasing content improving gameplay and you know, just all around supporting that game really pretty well, and I, I say that as a as a fan of the game and someone who plays it, you know, at least weekly if not more.
1: Yeah, no, that, that, that's a very cool. And I was talking about this on a different podcast. It's now you know games are are living, breathing things. They're live services. There's always going to be updates. Yep. You know, and in olden times, it would go in a disc or even older in a cartridge, and you dust your hands, and that's what it is, right? But yeah, it's it's smart when companies. Follow the fan reaction. They make adjustments. They do you know updates and improve and iterate and make the games better versus just say like, ah oh, those people don't know what they're talking about and, and uh, ignoring the feedback. Yeah, there's
0: there's so. nothing worse you can do when you have a little bit of pushback than to, than to just say that and carry on. You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, that's you know, the, in this
0: world today, and as bad as that was when they, when they launched that game, because of some of the decisions that were pushed down upon them, they've really done mm-hmm. everything I think humanly possible as a, as a developer to push through all that and, and really make a great game that people, you know, like, you know, many people really do enjoy and really, really love to play. And I'd give them all the credit in the world for that.
1: They're in Sweden, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Like, what are you curious about right now in the industry? You know, there's all these different trends going on and things like,
0: well, kind of we're touching on a little bit here, but like, like many, yeah. you know, gamers out there, I like to think about what the, what the future holds with the, uh, you know, with the next gen of consoles. And we're starting to get mm-hmm. a little bit of a look at that now, you know, some of the specs came out for the next Xbox and that's, that's interesting. I don't, I don't know what you can do with 8K versus 4K. But, <laughs> you know, we'll see, I guess we will buy a new learn, TV, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, and then you think about what's going to, what, what even comes after that, you know, what the hell is that going to be like, you know, it's, it's yeah. crazy. But, you know, like we were just talking about, if you look at the, the Mortal Combats and the, and the battlefield battlefronts of the world right now and many other mm-hmm. games on the, on the PS4, the Xbox One system, the graphics are just completely believable and realistic. I mean, I, I play and watch people play those a lot and they are just really, really good. So it's hard to mm-hmm. imagine how much better it can get, you know, but then again, it always does, you know, it always yeah. does. So that kind of thing intrigues me a little bit right now. And you just touched on mm-hmm. something, you know, from a business perspective for us. That steady evolution of, uh, you know, up the graphical realism ladder that games, you know, the consoles and and therefore the games have, have been taking has been an absolute boon to our business you know because right. with the data streaming and the constant updating uh, you know the updating of the the games after they've after they've launched it kind of blows mm-hmm. the roof off of you know the amount of content a game can hold and what we're seeing now is that we'll spend a, you know a solid year in production working on the content for the launch version of the game and then we right. we may spend another year year and a half working on all the stuff that comes within the life cycle of it you know that's yeah DLC yeah, and all DLC that kind of stuff of a yeah. long a long right. long tail now and yeah. man, that really, that's really, you know, that's really made what was kind of a tough business to be in. So much better, you know in terms of the cyclical nature of the way development yeah. work, because we would be on a project and maybe work for one or two years in production, and then no matter how good that relationship is or how successful we were for our part of that project, that developer is going to mm. ship that game and then go on go down you know they're not going to put their heads up again for, right God, you know sometimes they'll they'll go through a whole green light process and a design process, and it may be two years yeah. again or three before they start production again, and so right. it, it almost didn't matter how well you did for a client, that client was still going to disappear on you. And leave you with 50 yeah. guys that need to be, you know, need to be working on something, you know, from our perspective. Right. Feast or famine yeah, exactly. type stuff. Yeah. So yeah. then what do you get? You're lucky, you work hard, you go out there and market the crap out of things and, and you end up getting another mm-hmm. big project. Well, then you got to do that whole ramp up. You got to learn all the people. Ah, uh, right. And get their yeah. whole pipeline figured out. Pipeline. You got to figure out the art director. And and points of contact. Little details yeah, that right. the art director loves and what they hate. You know, you got all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, right. And then you know you're managing people and and managing you know keeping them happy because they're working on stuff that they enjoy and but man this mm-hmm. this whole long tail of uh you know that comes from the games as service model has really kind of made our our life so much better because now we can work long term on projects and by the time we you know get to the end of that end of that DLC tail we're kind of you mm-hmm. know that that client's kind of ready to start the next project.
1: Right. Yeah. Going to production on the next thing. So there's a little, very little of a gap.
0: And then it benefits them too, because then they don't lose us to whoever the other client is we have to go get because now we're Mm -hmm. still, still there ready for their production. And we still have all that communication and all that relationship and all that knowledge and know-how of the specifics of how things get done on their project. Um, It's Mm -hmm. all there. It's ready to go. It's ready to ramp right back up. And so it's a big benefit to everyone. And for us, it really takes that, you know, that big hill and valley out of the equation.
1: Yeah, you're, you're like an extension of the company, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. It, it is beneficial because yeah, I've been in situations where it's like, you, you want to keep working with a company, um, like your company, but you can't because there is those gaps. And then, then you worry too on the other side, like, you know, crap. When we need them again, are they going to be, you know, sorry, we're buried for six months with a, with a new client. And then, um, yeah, and we'd have no choice. To do in the same matter. Thing. We have to, we have to. Do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You've got payroll right. and you've, you've got to run a business. Exactly. So yeah, makes sense. What about potential threats you see to the game industry and and things like that? Like, wow, this is scary. Well,
0: there's this, uh, (laughs) from our perspective, you know, sitting in our little corner of the industry and what we kind of do and what we deal with as kind of our production, you know, specialist company. There's kind of a, you know what a MacGuffin is? The MacGuffin. It's in a yeah. A film. It's kind of it's a, the, a plot. Well, maybe that's not. The, maybe that's not the best. McGuffin is a red herring. Yeah, it's a plot yeah. device that kind of it provides a kind of a common thread for you know and, and maybe a motivating factor for characters and or to kind of kind of tie things to you know disparate parts of the film together. But it doesn't have any okay. meaning beyond that. Usually, it's like you know the best the the famous example is the briefcase in uh, Pulp Fiction. You know, it's kind of everybody's huh. after the okay. briefcase, right. but it, the briefcase really never was anything. You know what I mean? yeah but it just glowed just at of, one
1: point, but yeah there was yeah, yeah kind what's, of, what's the point it kind of yeah. holds
0: a, it's a common thread kind of thing okay and, but like I said, maybe that's not the best <laughs> analogy, maybe it's more like a boogeyman, you know it's something that exists out there kind of beyond the horizon, but it's coming to get you eventually, yeah yeah, you know okay, so the thing the thing that fits that for us is is the what I call the button, and you know what that is that's um uh, hmm. that's like that technology that's ever approaching that's almost here, it's a software tool or it's an online you know catalog or it's whatever it is that Uh, allows you to just make all your game content without making all your game content.
1: You know what I mean? Right. Automated. Yeah. yeah. yeah, The
0: character generator or the, you know, the automated character producing production machine or, you know, whatever that is. It's kind of like the speed tree of everything, you know, all the art content. But then if you look at speed tree, you know, that came along and that, what what does that do? It's a tool that allows you to make a whole shit ton more, more very good trees and bushes Mm -hmm. and everything else. But you still have to, you know, you still have to have artists working on that stuff.
1: You know, ultimately
0: it's a tool. And it, it allows you to mm. do more and better and it, it advances things a lot. But, you know, when things advance a lot, all that does is push the envelope further out. And then when the push yeah. the envelope further out, there's a gap there and the gap gets filled with people, artists, mm-hmm. program, right. you know, so, so yeah. that danger is not a real danger. But in the past, I've actually, you know, put time to, to really look, you know, thinking about that when we're doing our five-year projections mm-hmm. and where we think we're going to be and, you know, what are the threats and that sort of thing. Because every mm-hmm. so often, you know, like um, I remember Autodesk was working on a, on an automated character generation thing. And I think that was their goal was to try to make a, you know, game developers could just buy their tool and generate the hell out of characters and, and never have to do uh, it again. And right. But right. it just doesn't, it just doesn't cut it. It just, you know, there's various reasons why, but they just don't mm. cut it. So for me, you know, from our, you know, from our, you know, perspective, looking at things, that would be one of the threats that I would kind of, you know, uh, I've, I've kind of had in the back of my mind in the past, but, now that I'm mm. talking about it, I really don't think it is a threat, to be honest.
1: Okay. So, in terms of your company, you have uh, people in Argentina. You're in the Arizona area. I forgot. Was there a third location, or, or how was how that set up?
0: Well, we have three studios in China because we started originally in China.
1: Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. right. Okay. Our
0: our initial investor that we that we. Um, agreed with and started our company under agreement with was based in a city called Ningbo, which is just south of Shanghai in China. Okay. And they, they got us our start and we set up a, we sort of have a kind of a unique business deal there, but ultimately it comes down to, you know, they own property and they wanted to do something in, in digital production that dealt with clients worldwide. And we sort mm-hmm. of fit that bill for them. And so they were able to provide us a really, really nice brand new building facility in a, in a nice part of a nice city. And mm-hmm. put it, put up the, you know, the initial startup capital that we needed to get started. And, and we were able to provide them with a, with a company that fit the bill for everything that they needed in order to get the benefits that they get from the government on that building. One of those type of deals, you know? Yeah. So that initially I was going to China, you know, a lot the first year or two to kind of, you know, mm-hmm. dog and pony show. Build the
1: team and, and, yeah, and yeah.
0: But I have a great partner there, Leon Wong. He's fantastic. And, and he and I built uh, what is now three studios, one in Ningbo that we started with, a bigger one mm-hmm. in Beijing, which is where Leon is from. That's our main studio, really, the, the, the Beijing studio. And then we have another one that's in uh, outer Mongolia, actually. It's, mm. uh, it's, it's centrally located between like three major universities. So it's kind of our feeder studio. So we get, we get uh. younger people coming right out of school and then we train them up in, in the way we do things. And then we're able to mm-hmm. transplant them over to one of the other two studios when they're when they're ready to you know go full time for us.
1: Oh, that's great. Yeah. So you tap into the universities and you uh, build up the roster from there and then you can move them around. Cool. All right. So you do a lot of council stuff. Obviously, what about thoughts on AR and VR? You have any thoughts on that personally or professionally or? Oh, yeah. Yeah,
0: definitely. We have done quite a bit of work on, on both VR and AR products. Through our studios in, mainly in China. Well, the Argentine studio is basically, it's just supporting one client all the time. So that's a great, great thing to be in. But that's, that's a, that studio has grown and, and it's doing very, very well. But um, mm-hmm. that it's, it's dedicated, basically. It's a dedicated model. So and everything else we do is through one of our three uh, China studios. Most mm-hmm. of it flows through Beijing and then, and then it gets uh, kind of doled out by the other two in support. But we have done quite a bit of VR and AR stuff. In fact, we even developed our own AR product, an app for the China mobile market. It was pretty cool little thing. But you know, I I didn't want to stray too far from our core business model because I'm I believe if you divert your attention away from what you're really there to do, then you're 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 setting yourself up for risk. And so I kind of I'm the one that kind of put the cap on on our venture into you know becoming a, a developer in that way. But we have done mm-hmm. a, a lot of the VR and AR stuff. And actually, I have a couple of VR systems here in the house at, at home for the kids that we have the PlayStation VR and then we have the Oculus system. What I think about those from a user perspective, from a consumer perspective, I think they're great and they're a lot of fun. And I think they have a lot of potential. From my personal experience, I think even, you know, the console-based VR, you have to kind of get it out and hook it up and have wires going across the room.
1: Yeah, have to right, change right. the way
0: your PlayStation is connected to your TV and if there's so there's a a whole setup process and then there's the whole tape you can't store it neatly because you can't just kind of shove it over by the tv or it's going to be laying there getting stepped on and not looking so great. like the ps4 looks great just sitting by the tv you know it looks like a like a piece of equipment you know it's nice right but when you have all the vr accoutrements laying around it's kind of looks like a mess yeah cables yeah just for that simple reason i think that's a big part of the reason we don't use it all that often because it is fun Mm -hmm. It's a fun you know, it's right. a fun family thing to do. It's fun to do it by yourself sometimes. Yeah. Until that gets, uh, you know, until the technology advances to the point where I think, you, you know, you have like some form of Google, Google glasses that can transition to full VR mode, something like that, mm. if it becomes ubiquitous, then I think it'll really, really take off. But, yeah. you know, and that, yeah. that'll come down the pike probably not too far from now. But until then, I think it's a little bit hampered just by the, strictly by a convenience issue. And professionally speaking, there's a um, limitation to it because it's, it basically, the assets that you can produce for that, it basically equate to about half, like 50% of what you can do. Right. Because the frame net. rate
1: has to be uh, 60 for, for well, both. Well, you have to and, render everything uh, in stereo. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: So basically your budget for, you know, your poly count, and I think, I think it even affects texture use, but it basically mm-hmm. knocks everything down to half, which it almost puts you at, you know, last gen visual quality. You can do yeah. some tricks and, and get some of it looking pretty good, but it does, you know, it takes you back a little bit.
1: Yeah, no, def- definitely. And I've talked about a lot in the show and not had a chance to check it out yet. And I know it's not as powerful as some of the other systems, but like the Oculus Quest, you know, just not having the cables and not having the setup and not having to have the expensive PC and you can just kind of, you know, plug it, put it on the head and uh fire it up. And a much easier point of entry to get in there and play it without those friction points of digging out things oh, yeah. and plugging things so, in and all that kind of stuff. So... Yeah. Curious to see where that thing, uh, that platform goes. Well, say
0: even that, that's, it's, it's already getting there, you know, it's moving in that direction. Yeah. I think that's what it needs. Where, that's where it needs to go to really, to really kind of yeah. realize its full potential to me.
1: Right. Yeah. To, to get out of the, to go beyond just hobbyists and people that have the patience and the time and the space to deal with all that, to actually be something that, um, is easier exactly, to use. And yeah. what's a game that you're playing right now that you're excited about?
0: Well, I'm on my uh actually I'm on my second playthrough of Red Dead Redemption Two. Red Dead Redemption, wow, second, and Red Dead Redemption Two are my, probably my all-time favorite games. And my son, my son as well. I have a 16-year-old, and he's I think he's mm-hmm. on his third playthrough. He played once as a mm-hmm. as a nice person, and once as a as an evil bad guy, <laughs> and now he's going uh, for 100% completion, which. If you've ever looked into that game, 100% completion wow. is a high bar. <laughs> but he's yeah, yeah. he's going for it. He's almost got it. He's. I mean, I think there are a couple things in there that are literally impossible to do. But huh. he's uh, he's been working at it. And I,
1: How many hundreds of hours is, is he in? Is he? In, uh, I don't
0: know. I don't in even in? want to know.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: but he is really really good at it. I can tell you that. Both Battlefront yeah. and Red Dead, you play online, and you just never want to see this guy coming because. He's just the headshot master, and he's always at the top of the board, you know. And sometimes he'll have like 98 kills, and the next guy has 45, you know.
1: It's uh, not yeah, right.
0: yeah. <laughs> he's probably not the best in the world, but he's he's in the top, you know, probably five percent. I would I would give him.
1: Yeah, that's impressive. But yeah,
0: we love we love those games, and of course MK11. I'm playing, you know, going through that, and we, we pull that up all the yeah. time. The kids were playing it just this afternoon here, a little bit before we got. Yeah, new characters coming out too, right? Yep. So they uh, always new keeps characters it fresh. Coming out. Yeah. And cool new characters too. They really don't skimp on them. 'em. They're yeah. Something to kinda of get excited about when they come out. They're really, you know, interesting characters.
1: Yeah. And I I, I see uh Ed posting on Twitter and um, you know, like, oh wow, the character's coming out now and stuff like that. So it's yeah, it's gotta be Yeah, like, that's a
0: that's a big part of our role is we, we know what those characters are gonna be, you know,
1: sometimes right. a year yeah. in
0: advance or more. And uh we have to keep, you know, everybody has to keep the lid on that. But
1: Oh yeah, for sure.
0: It's pretty fun to see them coming yeah. out when we we finished working on them like six six months ago. Yeah, <laughs> some cases. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> yeah, they've been in the as they say in the can for yeah, a while, and now exactly. they're like okay. Yep. Now the world gets to see them, and everyone gets to get excited about them. And yeah, the it's forums it is fun.
0: It is fun to follow those forums and see see people getting excited about that stuff. And Ed and Company, you know, they do a great job of of promoting that stuff and getting everybody mm-hmm. hyped up for it. They do a fantastic job with that stuff. Yeah. Because sure. they care, you know, they, they really do care about it. That's what's so great about their passion. Company. Yeah.
1: Yep, for sure. Is there anything I should have asked you about, but didn't?
0: You know, if you get me talking, I can go on forever, but uh, so you're probably <laughs> lucky that you didn't ask me uh, about any other, to- any additional, you know, topics beyond what we covered. But no, I think, yeah. I think you, I think you did a nice job. And as you always do, and uh, we covered a good bit. Thank you.
1: Great. So where can people uh, find you online and, you know, website, Twitter, things like that? Well, the company websites at, uh,
0: nxastudios.com and uh, we we do have an online portfolio there and uh, several other pages that kind of feature what we do as a company and the type of work that we do mm-hmm. I do have an Instagram but to be honest it's all about you know mostly my kids and my cars and right. uh, you know I'm I'm older so I never really got into setting up a Twitter for the company I just didn't want to maintain mm-hmm. that every day and nobody really wants yeah. to see a tweet of every trade show we attend or the characters that we built a year ago so
1: yeah yeah, we, that's fine we
0: really don't have a lot more beyond the, uh,
1: the website yeah it's great that people can go there, check it out, see the portfolio, see all the great work that uh, your teams do, and um, you know learn more about the studio, nxastudios.com. That's great. Thank you. Well, cool. Well, thanks, Dwayne. It's been great having you on the show. And yeah, I uh, appreciate you talking about your background and let people know the roots of mocap and all these kind of cool things that you worked on and be involved with LucasArts and Sony and all these excellent projects.
0: Yeah, it's been it's been a really fun, fun ride. And I, I wholeheartedly recommend to anyone who's interested in getting into game development to go for it. Because it's only going to get bigger. It's getting bigger and better all the mm-hmm. time. Like we touched on earlier, the working conditions are are really fair and good. You know, there's very few instances of the, the the tough stuff that used to happen a lot. It's very mature industry these days. There's a lot of great companies and there's always innovation
1: and there always will be. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Okay, cool. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. It's a good time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast. If you found it interesting or helpful, please leave a five-star review. I'd really appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe. I have a lot of great episodes coming out. As always, I want to hear from you, the game development community. So give me a call at 224-484-7733 or reach out on the website, gamedevadvice.com. Com. I want to know your struggles, your questions, and your ideas, since the podcast is really about you, the fellow game developer, and our game development community. Thanks and take care.